This is a few nights after the full moon, but it's still big and bright and shiny up there. So, you know, close enough. It's had a a beautiful golden glow the last few nights. So I hope you've been enjoying that. And I'm I'm wondering what's shining in that bright moonlight for you. uh, What's growing in your hearts and your gardens and on your bookshelves and in your kitchens Well, I'm just pausing here to let you uh, let you answer. Uh, I mean, I won't hear you, but you know, maybe telepathically, energetically, something will come through, or you could always send an email. Uh, yeah, talk, talking into a microphone uh, by oneself is it's a strange thing, and then you end up in other people's ears, and and you don't know when, or or how. I don't understand how any of this works. But what I do know is that I'm glad you're here with me in the Violet Hour. And I also know that trans rights are human rights and nobody should be policing other people's bodies and everyone should have access to health care. That includes abortion, which is health care. And nobody should be living in fear or poverty and... Um, there shouldn't be bans on books or bodies. Uh, the bans sh- should be on assault weapons. And the control should be about gun control. Uh, anyway, um, that's, that's how it is in the Violet Hour. And uh, we just need to keep working to try to make it like that in the uh, rest of the world out there. But in the meantime, I have a great show for you. I am very excited to be reading to you from The House of Skin by Karina Licorice Quinn. And this is just a delightfully creepy, eerie little book. It's a beautiful book uh, published by Stanchion Books. And you're going to have to get your paws on your own copy. I'm going to read you a selection of it here and... And then you can uh, can go get your own copy. I will uh, give you details later on that. Uh, but let's let's jump right into the House of Skin by Karina Licorice Quinn, and there'll be a few musical uh, interludes, transitions from A Lullaby for the Wind by Sugar Whiskey. Uh, and before we get started, I'll just read the back of the book so you have a, an idea of what's going on uh, before I jump into the middle of it. At a gallery one night, a young sculptor meets Cyan, an art collector with a turquoise beard, a detached charm, and a wife recently dead. 
Bewitched by him and his posse of elegant friends, the sculptor agrees to accompany them to a party and finds herself plunged into their world of eccentric decadence. Sion and his clique are worshipped by flocks of struggling artists, all desperate to be discovered. When Sion invites her to complete a residency at his mansion home, the sculptor believes her big break has finally come. But what is it about the house that so unnerves her, and how much will she sacrifice for success? Okay, so let's dive right into the House of Skin. I was woken by the sound of vacuuming. A woman in just her underwear and a yellow feather boa was hoovering under the armchair on which I had curled up to sleep. It was around noon, and all around me, guests of the previous night's party were now cleaning, stuffing garbage into black plastic sacks, and mopping congealed drink spillages off the hardwood floor. As I wandered through the house, I found it filled with half-dressed people elbow-deep in rubber gloves, or on all fours with dustpans and brushes, all industriously erasing the traces of the night's bacchanal. As I passed a bathroom on the first floor, I saw a look-alike of an early naughty's Kylie Minogue on all fours, tiny halter top, gold hot pants, glossy hair cascading down, pulling a gob of hair from a plug hole. My companion from the roof terrace was there too, scrubbing a toilet. He lifted a toilet brush in greeting and gave me a knowing smile. Don't forget us. I looked around for my hosts, but when I couldn't find them, I grabbed a half-filled bin liner that was abandoned in a corner and began filling it with used cups and crumpled napkins that I found lying about. No one spoke as they worked. Someone behind me placed their hands over my eyes, and I felt the sharpness of a chin in the flesh behind my clavicle. Their scent was of burning wood and frankincense. Cyan. When I guessed his name, he said, "'Say it three times.' and he would only release my eyes after I had incanted his name in triplicate like a spell. Then he wrapped his arms around my waist instead. It was a strange gesture, too intimate. What had I done in those blank lost hours of the night to invite these caresses? Had I led him on in some way, done things I could not now recall? Still, I liked the roughness of his beard against my cheek, the smell of him like a smoldering forest. I learned later that this familiarity was expressed towards everyone in the deacon's inner circle. They walked with fingers interlinked, greeted one another with kisses on the mouth, played with each other's hair absent-mindedly as they conversed. But I did not know this yet. As I stood there, entangled with him, wondering how to respond, wondering what intimacies of the night before I had forgotten, Annette emerged from a nearby door dressed in tiny silk pajamas, a pair of Wellington boots, and a flat cap. She took the bag of rubbish from my hands and cast it away, saying, Oh, that's not for you, darling, and led me by the fingers through the house, Cyan following behind. When we looped around the staircase, Annette took a champagne bottle from a side table, took a swig, and then handed it back to me. Hair of the dog, she said over her shoulder. I obeyed. They took me to the kitchen where a select few were having breakfast at a large farmhouse table, Cyclops and Tiny and others I did not recognize. They melted across the chairs and tables, limbs stretched out, feet propped up between jugs of milk and jars of chutneys. With their knuckles grazing the floor, their heads lolling back, 
They reminded me of Boucher paintings of semi-dressed bodies in a scene of chaotic relaxation. They moved with mollusk-like languidness, their gestures exaggerated and slow. They did not offer me food. Instead, Cyan led me by the hand straight out of the kitchen into the garden, past the rose bowers and the lily pond and a life-size statue, gleaming white, of a man working the garden. From the waist up, this statue man was topless and might have been lifted from a gallery of classical sculptures in a museum. But from the waist down, he was utterly contemporary, in cargo trousers and work boots carved down to the minutest detail, the seams, the laces, the brand logos stitched on. I wanted to pause, make some remark about the cleverness of the statue, admire the effortless fusion of classical and contemporary, but Cyan did not stop. In a remote corner of the garden was a wooden cabin. Cyan unlocked it with a large, elaborate key. Inside was one large room washed in light. It was a workshop with a workbench, a potter's wheel, buckets of chisels, spatulas, saws, armatures, and brushes. As I wandered around the room, Cyan remained standing in the doorway. He did not cross the threshold. Above the door was one large eye, a nasar of glass formed of concentric circles, navy, then turquoise, white, and at last the black pupil on the center. Who had placed it there? A previous occupant? And from what had they needed protection? It's for only the most promising artists, Cyan said after I had completed a second circuit of the room, touching the tools, running my hand along the workbench. We offer only one residency each year, it's yours if you want it. I must have hesitated, because he added, you'd be rent-free. My belongings were delivered by two men with a van. There was no point in my going to empty my flat, Annette said, when the deacons could pay someone to do it for me. When I tried to refuse, no, it's all right, I said, I'd like to go. They told me, nonsense, what a waste of your time. And in the end, they wore me down. I didn't want to be impolite or seem ungrateful or mawkish, mooning over things they so clearly thought were inconsequential. They didn't even really seem to understand why I wanted my things. We can get you whatever you need, they said. But my books, my sketches, my portfolio, I needed those, I told them. They understood that. I didn't tell them that all my other stuff also mattered to me. The tatty t-shirts and well-worn jeans. The stuffed bear I won from a claw machine. The Wilco's crockery I had at university. My favorite pillow. And Gerald the cat. I didn't tell them that I wanted to say goodbye to my crappy flat that smelled like sardines. So, in the end, the conversation died. They were bored of it. They stopped listening to my protests, stopped replying, and busied themselves with flicking the pages of the niche art magazines that were fanned across the coffee table. So my belongings were sent for, packed by strangers' hands, delivered to the deacon house. And then I set about making a new life for myself, positioning my knickknacks on the shelves, easing myself into a routine, sketching or sculpting in the morning, afternoons researching in the house's vast library and collections, and in the evenings, I sat with the deacons, reading, drinking, engaging in discussions which always felt like a performance. And then they were gone. 
Overnight, without warning, the deacons and their entourage all disappeared and left me in their house only with the staff who came and went and moved through the house like afternoon shadows sliding across a lawn. These cleaners, gardeners, housekeepers slipped through doorways as I approached, or, if I caught them in a room without escape, would not look me in the eye, as if I were a convict or a monster. I wandered about disoriented, tried to make myself at home the way their note had instructed me to. Make yourself at home, love. We will be back soon. Kiss, kiss. I reclined on their plush sofas, then fretted over the indent my body left in the cushions and beat the wadding until my form was erased. I took baths surrounded by candles, lay back in the steaming water, and stuck a pointed toe luxuriously in the air, then was overcome with a chill at the thought of overstepping, being seen as a user, an upstart, and I emerged, dried myself roughly, incompletely, and scurried damp and shivering back to the garden to work. I cooked dinner in their kitchen, stirred pans of listless soup on the gas rings of their range cooker, seeing in the chemical blue flame the image of Cyan's turquoise hair, his head tilting and twirling in the blaze. I began to see things then in this house that was not mine, but through which I wandered alone at night when sleep would not come. There was, for instance, a pair of ballet shoes that seemed to move of their own accord. One night I would see them hanging from a wall lamp as if on point. Another night they would be frozen in the act of climbing the stairs. I once found them neatly placed side by side at the foot of a chair, as if a person made of air were sitting there, silent. Night by night I charted these shoes course across the house, but I could not explain how they moved, because even when no one was about but me, when the deacons were away on one of their trips to Florence or Paris or Prague, those shoes walked without feet. Around midnight once, as I sat reading in a wing-backed armchair in the clock room, I noticed a flickering in my peripheral vision. Down near the floor, in the corner where the skirting boards met, there was a movement, a sort of spasm, and even without turning my eyes to it, I knew it was a spider. The unmistakable twitch of articulated arachnid legs made me leap from the chair, and yes, there it was, the mess of spindly black limbs quivering from the joints, stretching out across the woodwork, ready to scuttle or pounce or... But no, I realized, it was not a spider. It was a knot of long black hairs, human hairs, tangled into a thick node in the center and then splaying out and shivering caught in a cross breeze like a tumbleweed. I gave a little laugh out loud, a little puff of air from my nostrils and a quiet closed mouth chuckle. The strange loneliness of being here was making me scare myself, making me see things and startle easily. I had read a story once about a house with poisons in the wallpaper that turned its inhabitants insane, and I was thinking about that story as I bent down with my fingers outstretched to pluck the gnarl of hairs from the floor when it scurried. It gathered its eight legs for a moment, curling up tight, and then, in a burst of energy, it ran across the hardwood floor and disappeared around a corner. My eyes had not deceived me either time. It was a spider, and it was also human hair, that, dead and fallen from its owner's head, had taken on a life of its own and could run. As they jet-set across Europe, the deacons sent me emails. Choose from Berlin, B. 
Bisou from Paris. I could only get these emails from a small tower room in a far corner of the house. I had looked everywhere and could find no computer, no landline phone, had asked one of the housekeepers that came and went, and she had only stared at my elbow, evaded my gaze and said repeatedly, I don't know, I don't know, as if she were embarrassed or afraid of me. At the top of this little turret, though, I could get phone signal, and so I checked my emails from the deacons there. They sent me emails about the commissions they were receiving on my behalf, forwarding me chains of conversations, instructions from collectors who wanted this sculpture or that sculpture. They told me to send them lists of materials I needed for each, and they would have them delivered to the house, and they did. But if I did not reply quickly enough, they would write to me again and again, each time forwarding their previous message, so that I could see the accumulation of mails asking me, had I seen the instructions? Was I having problems with my inbox? Was I all right? So I went off into the tower room to refresh my mailbox. In this room, there was a plinth, an empty pedestal of black marble with a plaque engraved, Woman, Un, in parentheses, Done. I often stood in front of the empty air atop the, that plinth and wondered what was meant to be there. The form of a woman, I assumed, in some state of misery or extreme stress, or something more abstract, something meant to symbolize a woman or womanhood or the idea of woman. Had the artifact been sent for cleaning or repair, loaned to an exhibition, sold? There was no artist named on the plaque, and I wondered at that too. If the artist had wanted to remain nameless, why not inscribe Anon? Perhaps this was an aspirational plinth, intended for a piece of art they had conceptualized but not yet commissioned. Or perhaps this empty plinth, the stagnant air, the cryptic plaque naming a piece that did not exist. Perhaps all of this was the point. Perhaps it was a meta-statue, and there was never meant to be a form of a woman on this platform, because she had been undone, erased, and was no more, so that now all that was left was the performance, my co-authorship with the piece that enticed me to stand here gawping, wondering, sucking me into itself, making me the woman undone. I smirked. It was clever. This was the level of wit I was expected to rise to here. I had to become enigmatic, Delphic. in the city, wanted two sculptures for his office, one of his wife's vulva and one of his mistress's. I had to craft something subtle so it wasn't obvious that he had pornographic statues in his office, but not so subtle that he couldn't see the resemblance. He wanted non-vulva vulvas for his work desk. His request came via one of the deacon's emails accompanied by various attachments, a video of his office, screen grabs of sculptures he admired, Linda Benglis, Kate McGuire, and two photographs of vulvas, which, it turned out, were also printed and sent to me in the post. I sat in my workshop and stared into those gashes. I wondered about the women who owned them. Did they know their vulvas had been handed to a stranger? That they were now pinned to my wall, two vulvas side by side, rotated and rotated as I tried to see new shapes in them, until at last I left them tilted towards each other, at an acute angle, like
like a pair of mouths in conversation. I sat in front of them for hours, thinking about the man's request. It struck me as a strange, possessive thing, misogynistic even. His hatred for women had come full circle, like a snake eating its own tail, and become a kind of obsessive worship so that he had to turn them into icons. I thought of Pygmalion and of Midas and of whether I should allude to those myths. Or could I turn the project into a mockery of the man without him knowing? Could I sculpt a mocking non-mockery? Something tongue-in-cheek? Something tongue-in-somewhere? Could the vulvas have tongues or teeth, perhaps? But for some reason, I could not start the commission. I would start creating a clitoris or a fallopian tube from modeling clay, and then I would lose my nerve, leaving it lying forlornly in some corner of the workshop, the room littered with genital fragments. After some weeks, my host began leaning on me for updates on my progress. The client was getting impatient. He had sent a deposit and seen nothing in return. What was I doing? Was I working at all? Did I not understand how I was putting their reputation at stake and after the chance they had taken on me? Under the weight of this chastisement, I moped about the empty house in a fug of self-pity, missing Gerald the cat and the comfy crappiness of my old flat, missing the persistent smell of sour milk and sardines that no amount of scented candles could mask. The vast high rooms of the deacon's house with their picture rails and intricate wallpapers made me think of the National Portrait Gallery, and I wandered silently about the displays, conscious of unseen eyes on me, the way I always felt when I was an art student, as if my professor, my peers, the gallery guards and security cameras were all watching me, peering over my shoulder at my sketchbook and judging. As I wandered, I came across a room I had not seen before, an empty ancillary room, small and hexagonal in shape, where a typewriter was displayed on a lone pedestal. It was an Olympia in that shade of soapy blue that was so popular in the 60s. Its case yawned open and several of its keys were missing, like punched-out teeth. I've always loved a typewriter, loved the haughty intricacy of their anatomy. The strikers remind me of clavicles, and they always, from some angle or another, seem to have a face. For some time, I have intended to make a sculpture out of deconstructed typewriters, rearranging their parts into the body of a person sitting typing, spine curved in concentration, fingers striking down on keys, actual door keys positioned vertically. In my imagination, the piece is called Ceci n'est pas une machine à écrire, because the structure both is and is no longer a typewriter. I was thinking about this piece as I looked at the Olympia, considering which parts of its form would work well as a tibia or an elbow, and absent-mindedly, I stroked along the shaft of its roller with the tip of one finger. At my touch, it sprang to life, and all the keys began suddenly to clatter in desperate motion, words materializing on the page at a frantic speed. But they were nonsense words, just jumbles of meaningless letters thrown together madly. There seemed to be a grammar to the typing. The words were arranged into clauses, sentences, paragraphs, punctuated carefully with the whole range of marks— full stops, question marks, colons, exclamations, but there was no meaning in any of it. Still, somehow the machine seemed to want to communicate. It was as if someone was desperately writing to me, and unknown to them, the keys had been mismatched from the strikers, so the words they input were being robbed from them, their urgent message garbled entirely by this cruel prank. 
I was spooked. Standing there in the darkness with my back to the open door and the vast corridor beyond, I felt vulnerable and exposed. Anyone, any thing, might leap out of the gloom, muzzle me and drag me away, or worse, down, to God knows where. I fled. I ran away from the frantic machine, left it clattering away maniacally in that ghastly, cramped ancillary room. I ran away from the house and its haunted exhibitions, across the gardens and back to the safety of my cabin. I arranged a makeshift bed for myself there. I did not want to be in the house that night. Still, I did not sleep. I kept seeing, glowing in the air before me, an incomprehensible phrase that had been repeated over and over among those manic typings and had left itself engraved on my vision. PCJDWC, comma, QAWLRADDCT, exclamation, PCJDWC, comma, QAWLRADDCT, exclamation. What awful secrets lay in that message? PCJDWC, comma, QAWLRADDCT, exclamation. The next morning, in the rational light of the day, I told myself I had been silly. The haunted typewriter was obviously a piece of kinetic art. It was mechanized like a pianola, probably, to give the illusion of self-animation. It wasn't alive. It wasn't a conduit for some invisible typist reaching out from the beyond. Inside the body of the machine, there would be a pneumatic system making the strikers move. It was mechanics, not magic, that had powered the thing. Still, it took me all morning to gather the courage to go back to that ancillary room and examine it. I looked at it from every angle, even picked it up to turn it over and examine the underside. There was nothing I could see that betrayed its design. I took the machine to the kitchen and slammed it on the table, hoping it would burst open, but it resisted. In a frenzy, I grabbed a carving knife from the block and jimmied it into one of the seams of the body. I intended to crack the thing open like a nut, like a ribcage, to disembowel it and prove that it was not a magical machine but a piece of cunning trickery. With all my strength, I leaned on that knife, trying to prise the body open, but it would not budge. It was a reckless act and could so easily have gone wrong. The knife could have sprung loose, sliced open my hand or my face. Instead, all at once the metal gave way, and, in the same instant, the deacons were in the doorway of the kitchen— open-mouthed, appalled, as one half of the machine's torso clattered to the stone floor, and the other half lay on the table, innards exposed, and, most inexplicable of all, from its abdomen a thick liquid spilled and spilled, dripping off the edge of the table onto the flagstones, and what was odd was the color, because the machine's cryptic message had been typed in black ink, and what was spilling now was red." Deacons had organized a seminar. They had invited a performance artist from Brazil and dozens of artists and aficionados to come and watch. In the weeks since their return, the deacons had been giving me the cold shoulder, sidling past me silently in the corridors, handing me my dinner on a tray to make clear I was not welcome at the communal table. I sequestered myself to the workshop or my bedroom, ashamed, lonely, but where else could I go? My old flat had certainly been let by now. I'd left my day job to take up this residency. 
I was stuck. Then, the day before the seminar, the silence broke and Cyan pulled me aside. He had organized the seminar for me, he said, and I was to pay very close attention to the visiting artist. The problem, he said to me, was that I was holding my art at arm's length, that I wasn't truly living it. There was an artist, he said, who made artifacts using her own excreta, braiding her own hairs into textiles, painting with her menstrual blood, creating miniature sculptures with her nail clippings and baby teeth. This, he said, was an artist. I thought that his lecture was done because he took a long pause here, and I made as if to move, as if to extract myself from the grip of his hands on my upper arms. But he continued, Artists are, have always been a kind of priesthood, he said, ushering the people towards the kinds of thoughts and experiences which the mundanity of daily life makes us forget. But like any priesthood, there must be a sacrifice. Blood on the altar. He spoke about the bloodied toes of the dancer, the cracked and raw skin of the sculptor, the tired red eyes of the writer squinting late into the night. Blood, blood, blood. Did Lorca not say, after all, that creating art was about duel and death and blood? I told him I didn't know what Lorca had said. He would find the piece in the library for me to read. It was very instructive, apparently. Inspiration, he said, is a goblin. I nodded, confused, but he seemed satisfied with my nod, and he released me and left. The lights dimmed and a spotlight came up on a tree stump in the middle of the dais. Over the speakers, slow, slow drums beat a primal rhythm, thumping and thumping in the silence. Beside me, around me, I could hear the other spectators breathing. At last, the performer appeared. She wore a white dress, loose, with loops of fabric hanging down like a toga, and the entirety of her back was bare. As if with the weight of millennia on her shoulders, the performer made her way across the dais. The way she walked made me think of an ostrich. She folded herself over at the waist, her arms stretching out behind her, and she picked up her legs up off the floor, lifting the knees high and then easing her feet back to the floor with the fluidity of a ballerina. When she reached the tree stump, still folded in this way, she stepped onto it and made a languid, undulating motion with her arms, like a swan taking flight. That is when an enormous projected image of her back flashed onto the large screen behind her. There was a camera somewhere filming the performance live, though I could not see quite where it had been placed. She was facing us, crouched down on the stump, and from behind her, her assistant approached. Above his head, he held a large white feather, but at its tip, the feather tapered into a long, thin, almost filament-like needle. In my gut, something jolted. What was he going to do with this needle? He approached the performer, stood behind her as she crouched, and then on the big screen behind them we watched as he pushed the needle into her skin just inside her left shoulder blade. At first the skin resisted. The needle created a little indentation and nothing more. But then, the tension becoming too great, the skin popped, the tip of the needle disappeared below the surface, and a perfect teardrop of blood trickled down her back. More and more, he fed the needle into her, 
its great length vanishing inside her body. She, facing us, betrayed no pain beyond the tiniest of winces, no longer than a flash, a micro-expression, nothing more. One after another, the assistants came, threading the feather needles into her back, then backing away to fetch another. Viewing her from the front, the vision was an enchanting one. She was an angel, a living, breathing angel before us, crouched down in white, enormous white wings growing piece by piece and fanning out from behind. But on the screen we saw the carnage, the blood running down, not just a trickle now, but rivulets, bathing her back and staining the white fabric of her dress. Here and there, as the canvas of her back became crowded, the placement of the feathers had been clumsy, and the needles began to crisscross and collide with each other, warping the skin, pulling it painfully. The artist was stoic, her face set in stony determination, but at one point I thought I saw a single tear fall. I wanted to leave, I wanted to walk out and leave, but I was hemmed in on all sides by the rest of the audience. This was abuse, it seemed to me. Why, except under duress or exploitation, would an artist subject herself to public torture in this way? Across the crowd, I caught the eyes of one or two others who seemed uncomfortable, too. Wordlessly, we sent each other looks of horror, but we were stuck. At the end of the performance, the drumming stopped. The attendants retreated, walking backwards as they had done throughout their hands pressed together prayerfully, deferentially, and against a backdrop of silence, the performer stood to her full height. The movement wrenched her pierced skin, shifting the needles and causing more blood to flow. She dropped her dress and, entirely naked, stood before us on that severed tree trunk with the wings spread out behind her, a living, bleeding statue. There was applause, Tentative at first, then more assured, and Cyan climbed onto the dais. The lights came up, throwing the artist out of the performance and into the room we all inhabited. She was no longer a creature, a concept, an embodiment of themes and ideals. She was a breathing, bleeding human woman. But Cyan did not offer her a hand or invite her to leave the stage. He left her standing there as he spoke to us, thanking the performers, sharing his interpretation of the piece, what we could all learn from it, and at last he concluded, speaking with the booming self-assurance of a televangelist. Artists make up a holy priesthood summoned to the highest calling. Looking directly at me, he said, Art is service. It is sacrifice, sacred and purifying. All musical excerpts were from A Lullaby for the Wind by Sugar Whiskey. It's me, Mr. Bear. Oh, hey, Mr. Bear. Come on in. Good to see you. Uh, would you like some nettle chips? Uh, nettle chips? Sure. Uh, I don't think I've ever had nettle chips before. Me either. I love nettle, but I've never made chips out of them before. Um, but, I mean, you know, people make kale chips and seaweed chips and... Um, and potato chips. 
Well, yeah, of course, potato chips. Everyone knows about potato chips, but, uh, you know, um, nettle chips are, uh, they give you that crunch um, that potato chips do. Well, okay, not exactly the same, but they're crunchy. Um, but they're just so packed full of minerals and vitamins and nutrients. I mean, nettle is fantastic. And I was just so excited to see the, the baby nettle arrive. It's really spring, Mr. Bear. Uh, yeah, I uh, know. I'm, I'm really happy. Uh, it's, uh, you know, time to time to go without shoes and play in the dirt. And, uh, yeah, look, look for all those baby plants. Yeah, why don't why don't we go outside and sit with the nettle? Um, I just I just love nettle so much, and um, you know, uh, it stings. It's stinging nettle. Um, uh, that sounds painful. Yeah, well, I mean, it. You know, it. Yeah, it's a little sting. It can hurt if you, I suppose. Um, but some people do it on purpose, Mister Bear. They they sting on purpose. Yeah, it's called urtication. Um, people do it to help uh, with with things like arthritis and, and joint pain. So they'll actually um, sting themselves with the nettles. Uh, cause it, it brings blood to the area. And uh, yeah, and it, you know, it hurts in the moment, but then um, uh, gets the, the blood going there and, and uh, they feel better after that. Wow. Uh, I don't think I want any urtication, Miss Massey. Well, it's okay, Mr. Bear. Um, there's other ways to enjoy nettle. Um, you know, just sitting with it, of course, is lovely. Um, but having it to eat and drink is, you know, just a wonderful way to get so many nutrients, and uh, which, you know, our bodies really need, uh, especially, you know, in spring. It's just a great spring tonic. Uh, but doesn't it, doesn't it sting? I don't want to eat anything that stings, Miss Mousy. I know, Mr. Bear. No, once, once you cook it or dry it, uh, it doesn't sting. Um, just smell it. It's so green and earthy. I love it. Um, but, um, nettle chips, if people want to make their own, you just, um, you just harvest the the nettle tops um and i just saw this i mean there's lots of you can find recipes and blogs and things online i saw it on um black forager alexis nicole on instagram she's fantastic but she had a little thing about nettle chips recently um but yeah you just um you just harvest the the tops and um uh, you can wear gloves when you cut them and and then you can use tongs in the kitchen so you don't get stung. But you just toss them with olive oil and salt and pepper and, I mean, whatever you want, but that's all I did. Olive oil, salt, and pepper. And then spread them out on a parchment pe- paper on a baking sheet. And you can bake them at like 300 or 350, um, anywhere in there. And, you know, check them after six or eight minutes or so and then... You know, just keep checking them till they're crispy enough for you. Um, and then you can just eat them or you can crumble them up um, and, you know, add them on your baked potatoes or your pasta or anything. Oh, wow, that's that's great, Miss Mousy. These are pretty tasty. I could I could get used to snacking on these. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty excited about them. Um, but, you know, if you don't want to make... Um, 
you don't want to make chips out of them, you can just um, cook them up. You know, you just, uh, uh, if you can blanch them and let's just throw them in some boiling water uh, for, you know, a minute or so or a couple minutes. And then, um, and then you can chop them up and put them in anything, like cook them up with eggs or um, anything. Um, put them in smoothies. Um, and of course, you can always make tea. I love my nettle infusions. Uh, so, yeah, I'm just um, all about the nettle today, Mr. Bear. Uh, well, it is springtime, Miss Mousy, and not nettle, uh, it's, uh, it's a real spring herb, isn't it? Yeah, everyone starts talking about nettle this time of year. Um, but, uh, you know, remind your listeners, Mr. Bear, that I'm just a two-dimensional, hand-drawn rodent uh, studying herbalism, and they should always do their own research. Um, and you don't want to eat old nettles, like when, um, you know, when they've gotten really tall and they're going to flower, once they've flowered, you don't want to be eating them then. Um, so, but get them now while they're young, and, and you know, you just snip off the top few inches and they'll, they'll keep growing back. Um, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, uh, nettle, nettle chip fun. Um, you know how to have a good time, Miss Mousy. I always, I always have fun with you. Aw, thanks, Mr. Bear. Um, oh, we should, um, do, do an oracle. I've got, um, Kate Greenaway's Language of Flowers right here. Do you want to do the honors, Mr. Bear? Uh, no, you, you, you go ahead. Miss Mousy, I've I'll cut my oracle later, so you know you should get a turn flipping. Okay, well, so I'm just gonna flip through Kate Greenaway's language of flowers, paw through, point down, and let's see what our oracle is today. Rose maiden blush. If you love me, you will find it out. Hm. If you love me, you will find it out. Well, that sounds fun. Um, that's kind of like, um, daisies, you know, love me, love me not, but rose maiden blush. Okay. Um, well, that makes me want to make up a nettle and rose tea. So, um, I'm going to go put the kettle on, Mr. Bear. Um, you, um, you, you can finish up those nettle chips and then you should probably go finish the show. Oh, yeah, that that's true. Thanks, Miss Mousy. No problem, Mr. Bear. Thanks for stopping by. I'll see you um at the new moon. Oh well, yeah. I'm I'm gonna be a little late. Um, I'm just uh just so you know, Miss Mousy. It'll probably be a few days after the new moon. Okay. Well, that's that's usually when I expect you anyway, Mr. Bear. <sighs> oh, I know. I know. Uh, you know, I've been doing pretty good this year. I know. I'm just teasing you, Mr. Bear. It's fine. All right. I'm going to go put the kettle on now. I'll see you later. Are you or anyone you know a musician? Amateur, professional, experimental? Do you tell stories with music and song? Are you interested in being considered for a potential feature on Mr. Bear's Violet Hour? If you have answered yes to any of these questions... Please send samples of your work, links to Bandcamp, SoundCloud, your website, digital demo tape files on Google Docs, whatever you have, to violethourmoon at gmail.com. Um, that's the show, folks. Thanks so much for joining me in the Violet Hour. 
I hope you enjoyed the work of Karina Licorice Quinn and you can find out more about her and all her writing online at karinalicorishequinn.co.uk that's k-a-r-i-n-a-l-i-c-k-o-r-i-s-h-q-u-i-n-n dot c-o dot u-k and you can get your paws on your own copy of The House of Skin and more from the wonderful Stanchion Books and their website is stanchionzine.com that's s-t-a-n-c-h-i-o-n-z-i-n-e dot com and uh, before you go uh, a parting gift of an oracle and this one is from Norton Jester's The Phantom Tollbooth so I'm just going to paw through point down at a page and your oracle is they looked around very carefully. Tock sniffed suspiciously at the wind, and the humbug gingerly stabbed his cane at the air, but there was nothing at all to see. I'll read that one more time. They looked around very carefully. Tock sniffed suspiciously at the wind, and the humbug gingerly stabbed his cane at the air, but there was nothing at all to see. Well, I'll let you interpret that as you will. But uh, once again, thank you for joining me in the Violet Hour. I'll be back uh, shortly after the new moon later this month. And until then, take care and be kind to each other. Theme song and show music by Sugar Whiskey. Mr. Bear and Miss Mousy believe in radical love and kindness, in mutual aid, and empowering ourselves and our communities. Together we can dismantle the white, racist, colonizing, misogynistic, capitalist, homophobic, transphobic, ableist patriarchy. This podcast was recorded on Potawatomi, Kickapoo, Miami, Sioux, and Peoria land. Text your zip code or city comma state to 907-312-5085 and find out whose land you're living on. Uh, you can also go to land.codeforanchorage.org for more information. There's also a helpful map at native-land.ca. This is just the first step in developing a land acknowledgement. Let's learn our history and honor the land and indigenous peoples, past, present, and future. podcast was produced in collaboration with the Boston Free Radio Podcast Network, part of bostonfreeradio.com and Somerville Media Center, Somerville's longest running public access media center that enables a vibrant and diverse community to express its creativity, explain its ideas, share its cultures, and foster the individual right to freedom of speech. Learn more about Somerville Media Center at somervillemedia.org or check out some of the other amazing Boston Free Radio podcasts and radio shows at bostonfreeradio.com. Thanks for listening.